The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Good morning. You're going to have to bear with me. We're reading all of Nehemiah chapter 5. Thank you. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children and as of our and as of their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our, it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchids, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as they say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I appointed, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of our taxerzes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I do not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on on this wall. And we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered here for the work. Moreover, there were many at my table, 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what, now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds 
and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the reading of the word. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Uh, before we get started, I need to do two more things. Uh, one is we need to uh, scoot into the center. I have a good problem this morning, which is there are a lot of us. So if you can move to the center. Um, the second thing we need to do is we need to say a prayer uh, for the West family. Paul West, who's playing keyboard just a moment ago. Uh, he and Dina West, his wife. Their son, David, has just had a seizure. And he's at Le Bonheur, and so Paul has actually rushed out to go that way. That's the extent of what I know about this very scary situation. But let's begin by praying for the West family. Jesus, we know that you are always present among your people, and we pray that you would go ahead of Paul and Dina and David, and that you would do your divine healing work for David has ever even seen by a physician. We pray that you would... Be with the physicians that see him and that they would minister healing, uh, that you would comfort Paul and Dina, and that you would be with them, that you would be, they would be able to physically feel your presence with them, that it would be a, a, something they can sense that you are with them uh, in this time, God. We just ask that you would be with our dear brother and sister and their son um, in one of the scariest imaginable situations. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, for two years, I was a missionary in Kenya, and one of my great privileges was getting to work with a church there called New City Fellowship Nairobi, a church that was trying to bring together people from different ethnic backgrounds and class backgrounds around Jesus. This is really hard to do because tribalism is a big thing in Kenya among black Africans in Nairobi, and then there's a large Indian population, and they don't really like each other either. And then there's also class distinctions between those who come from some of the slums and whatnot. So this was not an easy deal, but it was a beautiful church to be a part of. And when a worship leader quit during the week, uh, I was the tallest person in the room, so they asked me to do it. And uh, what that meant was singing up front, in front of people, in six different languages, only one and a half of which I spoke. So I'd be following along, you know, phonetically with whatever was in front of me. And it was incredible. But I often thought, why can't these Luos and Luyas and Gujaratis get along? What's their deal? Why is this reconciliation thing so hard? Then one day, God shone a light on my heart. And I remembered that I am a child of this city, which is 60% African American. And I remembered that up until my 20s, I had not had a single significant relationship with a person of color. I remembered that I was from the most segregated city in America, and I was cut to the chase. Sometime after that, my wife and I moved back to this city. We moved into the neighborhood here in South Memphis and went to work for an organization some of you will know called Advanced Memphis. It was kind of exciting. A church I'd been a part of asked me to come talk about racial issues. And as I was preparing for that talk, I ran across a quote from Sung Chan Ra, which says this, If you're preparing to do urban ministry and you've never had a non-white mentor, you are not an urban minister. You are a colonialist. And as I prepared for that talk, to which I had been invited as an expert, I realized that I currently had no authentic African-American mentors in my life. And I was not prepping for urban ministry. I was well on the way. Have you ever been called out? Have you ever been confronted? Have you ever been challenged at the point when you were doing your very best to be a part of the solution? Do you know what it feels like to be 
trying to do the right things and have someone shine a spotlight on the darkest unseen parts of your heart. This morning we are reading a passage about God's people on mission getting called out and how they had to respond to be the just and righteous family of God. And because this is God's word to us, this passage also speaks to us about how we must respond when we are called out on mission if we want to be the people of God. It's kind of a funky passage, got a lot of weird ancient economic stuff in it, but to get what's going on here, you've got to kind of get the background of the entire story of the Old Testament. And here's the story of the Old Testament. God has called a people to be his just and righteous family on mission to the world. When God calls Abraham, he says, I'm going to use your family to bless all the families of the world. And in Genesis 18, in a brief but very telling comment, God says this, Have I not chosen Abraham so that he may walk in the way of the Lord and teach his children after him by doing justice, by doing righteousness, so that I may bring to him all that I have promised? God's intention for his people is to create a family characterized by justice and righteousness and such a just and righteous family in this unjust and unrighteous world will bring blessing to all the nations. That's the story of the Old Testament. And this has everything to do with our economic life. And when we get to Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, God gives his people laws, economic laws often, to help them figure out what justice and righteousness looks like. And oftentimes those laws deal with debt. Now there's kind of a twofold message to God's people about what to do with debt. On the one hand, because the people around you who are poor are your family members, you must lend to them. Deuteronomy 15 says, open wide your hands, lend to your brother, your neighbor, sufficient for their need. But on the other hand, you aren't allowed to benefit from these loans because these are your family members. So you're not allowed to charge interest. You're not allowed to seize collateral. If someone becomes a debt servant to you on the seventh year, they have to go free. And the explicit purpose of this legislation is to embody God's justice and righteousness and to empower the family to be the family that God wants it to be. In Leviticus 25, it says this, Take no interest from your poor brother, take no profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. In other words, you've got to embrace this kind of just and righteous economic program so that you can be the family I've called you to be. Now, Unfortunately, there's a long history in Israel, as among all of God's children ever, of failing this job description to be God's just and righteous family. So in Isaiah 5, God says, I showed up to my people, and I was looking for justice, and I found bloodshed. And I was looking for righteousness, and I found an outcry of the oppressed. And in Jeremiah 34, we actually learn that this injustice and unrighteousness was bound up with their failure to obey those precise loans about how you lend to people. And that that failure even led to exile. So in our text, we've got a group of people who are coming back from an exile that partially happened... A judgment that partially happened because of their failure to be the just and righteous people of God. And now they're back in the land. And the question is, is, are these people 
with Ezra and Nehemiah, finally going to become the just and righteous family God has wanted all along. And because this is a word spoken to us, it also asks us, are we? Now, I want to suggest to you there's four things, four things at least, that this passage teaches us about what it means for us to become the just and righteous family that God has desired for us to be. And the first one is this. In God's just and righteous family, we must hear the cries of our broken family members. In God's just and righteous family, we must hear the cries of our hurting and broken family members. In chapter 5, verse 1, we are told a great outcry emerged from some in the community against others in the community. There's a really deep irony here. Because the same word that the Bible uses to describe this outcry is the same word it uses to describe the outcry of the Israelite slaves suffering under Pharaoh in Egypt. This is the cry of oppression. This is the cry of injustice. But they're not in Egypt. They're not in Babylon. They're in the promised land. And a cry emerges not against some foreign ruler, but against our own flesh and blood, our own neighbors, saying we're suffering. And it is the fact that Nehemiah hears this cry that makes the rest of the passage possible. Now we learn from what this, this group of Israelites are complaining about that all, they're facing all sorts of problems. Just look at the text. There are some who are saying, with our sons and daughters we are many. Let us get grain that we may, we may keep and eat alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of a famine. In other words, some people are suffering because of natural disaster. Some people are suffering because of circumstance. But then we learn in, in verse 4, there are some who are having to borrow money to pay an unjust oppressive king's tax and so they're losing their land and they're suffering because of systemic injustice away out there and then in chapter i mean excuse me in verse five we learn that some are even having to sell their own children into slavery to their brothers and sisters The text bears witness to the cries of people who are suffering overlapping forces of pain and brokenness. Life circumstances, natural disaster, oppressive systems, far and near. Too often, I want to suggest to you in the church, we don't want to listen to the cries of people suffering from all those different forces. We want to restrict the problem to the broken family or the wrong government system, or personal choice, or the economy. And we ignore the way that there are people in our midst who are suffering systemic injustice and brokenness, personal injustice and brokenness, all sorts of social and economic violence and dispossession that's happening in our world. Nehemiah is listening to their cries. And being moved by their cries is what allows this community to get back on the just and righteous track. And the question is, what about us? Are we listening? Do we hear the cries? Let's talk about some of the cries we might be hearing. Right here in this neighborhood in South Memphis, the early part of the 20th century, as many of you will know, there were a lot of African American homeowners right out our back door who'd scraped up a living in the shadow of Jim Crow and managed to own homes in this neighborhood. That threatened the white supremacist political establishment. And so those homes were seized from those working class African Americans. Those homes were destroyed. 
And the neighborhood that we stand in was created poor by design through the building of large, racially segregated, economically segregated housing projects in terms of the Claiborne and Foot Homes. When you make a community poor by design, it makes it hard to become a homeowner. But becoming a homeowner for African Americans in this neighborhood was even harder because they were barred from FHA-backed mortgages through a practice called redlining. Many of you will know about redlining. Redlining means that the bank draws a red line around neighborhoods that have, quote-unquote, too many black people and refuses to make loans in that community. That barred African Americans within our lifetimes of home ownership during the program that our our community has embraced that has most encouraged home ownership among white families. Being barred from legal, acceptable mortgages exposed African Americans in this neighborhood to predatory lending. Being offered oppressive, uh, slick, terrible uh, buying schemes that often dispossess people of their wealth. Now that predatory lending and that redlining that I'm talking about Major national banks have been convicted of those practices in our city as recently as 2013. Now, inevitably, as a result of such systemic brokenness and individual brokenness, we encounter stats like these, stats that are shocking 50 years after Dr. King inaugurated the Poor People's Campaign. A recent state, uh, statistics, recent studies show that unemployment among African Americans nationally is higher today than it was in 1968. The rate of home ownership among African Americans nationally is unchanged over the last 50 years. That's nationally. What do you think it's like right here in our backyard? The wealth gap between white and black families has tripled in the last 50 years. That's not just the story of our country. That's not just the story of, 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 of one ethnicity. That's the story of the neighborhood that we're sitting in. Do we hear the cries? Recent studies suggest that 50% of children who have Down syndrome are aborted. 50% in America. In parts of Europe like Denmark, that number is as high as 98%. In Iceland, there has not been one child born with Down syndrome in the last five years. Not one child. Do you hear the cries of the unborn? Do you hear the cries of those people with Down syndrome who do come into this world and live in a world where one half of their peers are destroyed? Do you hear the cries? In our neighborhood right in here, our neighborhood high school, only 1% of graduates test college ready on the ACT. 1% of graduates. Do you hear the cries? Do I hear the cries? Have we heard? Have we listened? We cannot become the people God wants us to be until we have heard the pain of our brothers and sisters in Christ and our fellow image bearers in our city and in our world. But secondly, in God's just and righteous family, we must repent because we are part of the problem. And God's just and righteous family, we must repent because we are a part of the problem. I think that Nehemiah 5.10a is one of the most remarkable sentences in all of Scripture. Nehemiah is a guy who's on mission. Nehemiah is a guy who's experienced oppression himself. Nehemiah is a civic leader. Nehemiah is a hero. 
And he's angry about the injustice that he's heard about. And he's calling people out for it. But in verse 10a, this is what he says. Even I and my family have been participating in this unjust lending to our brothers and sisters. You see, when Nehemiah hears the cries, it doesn't drive him first to condemn out there. It causes him first to prophetic introspection in here. And he's able to identify he might not be the worst offender, but he's a part of the problem. That's where he goes. He doesn't ignore the cries. But he doesn't outsource responsibility either. He says, I and my, this is just like Nehemiah all along, way back in Babylon, when he heard that the walls were down, and he knew that he had to go to the king and ask permission to come back. What did he say? Father, we have been sinning against you, even I and my father's household, doing great wickedness. Nehemiah models for us that if we want to be the just and righteous family of God, we can't just hear the cries. We have to identify and repent where we are participants. It would have been easy for Nehemiah to say, I'm on mission. I'm one of the good guys. That ain't none of me. That would have been easy. Maybe it's easy for you. Maybe, maybe you're the other guy. I work for a nonprofit. I, work, I worship at a multi-ethnic church. Maybe you're going, I've experienced my fair share of oppression. What are you talking about? Me being a part of the problem. Right? Nehemiah had experienced his fair share of oppression. Nehemiah was one of the good guys, but he heard the words. Let's think about those statistics in South Memphis. It's easy to go, man, back then, man, that's terrible. Man, those banks. Do you look for housing or rental properties with people who all look like you and earn like you, do you try to maximize value in your home in such a way that you end up far from any of the people who've been stuck in the communities of concentrated poverty in our neighborhoods? And some of you are going, yeah, they do do that. They do do that over there. But some of you are like me. Have you moved back to an, an urban neighborhood? Are you trying to be a part of the solution and ignore the way that community development in our city is now displacing the poor? Have you moved to a cool neighborhood so you can be a long, diverse neighborhood, but also walk to your favorite brewery? If so, you are a part of the problem, and I am a part of the problem. Think about schools. We've desegregated our schools, and then we've resegregated them along race and class through where we choose to live, where we choose to work, where we choose to send our children. Are you a part of the problem? Talk about people with disabilities. Some of you were thinking like I was thinking when I read those statistics. Those terrible mothers. And then you ask ourselves, are people with disabilities present and thriving in our midst? In our homes? In our church? Can people see what it looks like for people with disabilities to flourish in your family and homes and neighborhoods? All of a sudden I'm starting to realize I'm a part of the problem. I'm going to keep going. Sorry. Um... Hashtag me too. Right? If you're like me, you know, you've been, you've been, you know, spent about two weeks. You're right, that me too movement. Those, those horrible people out there, they're, on the one hand, they're, they're, they're objectifying and, and abusing women. And on the other hand, we've still got women making less money than their male counterparts. Those guys are, those movie people are so bad. Right? Ask yourself, what about you? Let's be real, gentlemen. Every time we've ever looked at something we shouldn't have on the Internet, we've participated in the active sexual subjugation of our female neighbors. Every single time. Every time we've tolerated a decision-making table 
in our place of employment, where women are underrepresented, we have been a part of the problem. I had the enormous privilege of, of helping lead a conference this past year, past month actually. Started back in August with the planning. And I was basically in charge of picking uh, the planning committee, and then I had a big voice in who we picked for speakers. And I did a really good job of making sure that uh, about half of those six or seven folks were African American. But we only got one woman. I'm a part of the problem. Even when I'm doing my very best work, I'm a part of the problem. Some of you may be in neighborhoods where you're struggling. And you think you got to do what you got to do. So you've started participating in the drug trade. Allows you to take care of your mom, maybe a younger sibling, just helping people with stuff they're going to be doing anyways. 161 people will die from opioid addiction today. 50,000 people will die from drug addiction today. And even if you're just using, your consumption is fueling a bloody war that has cost tens of thousands of people their lives. You are a part of the problem. And we could go on. We could talk about spiritual systems, about how we've created churches where we have polite sins over here and ugly sins over there. And if you got the polite sins, you're in the club. Or we could talk about, man, Aaron, would you quit convicting me before the sermon? Can we wait till afterwards? How many of us have been lulled into a false Bible Belt system where we don't share our faith anymore? And we leave people vulnerable to the cries of judgment because we're unwilling to break out of a bad system that we are complicit in. Folks, we've got to hear the cries and then we've got to repent of our participation in the problem. The third, and God's just and righteous family gets worse and better because repentance must lead to life change and self-sacrifice. I love Nehemiah at this point, man. You know, he's like the company man. He's like the boss. You know, you expect this kind of behavior from like an Amos, right? Amos is the farmer. He's got nothing to lose. God calls the prophet. He comes in like, you know, camel hair and stuff. And he like says some bold stuff. Drop the mic. Back to the farm, right? Nehemiah's got to run some stuff. Nehemiah's the CEO. Nehemiah's the mayor. He's got to manage a bunch of stakeholders, right? And he's got this big wall project. And these are his biggest donors, These are the decision makers, right? And what does Nehemiah say? What you're doing is not good. Stop it. And amazingly, I think 510B is one of the second most amazing lines in all scripture. They go, okay. (laughs) No one's ever done that when I've preached before. (laughs) Okay, we'll stop all the bad stuff we're doing, right? And then. You know, if it were me and somebody asked me to go to like, you know, a place where I thought there was a lot of people complicit in oppression and I, but they were also people who paid my salary, you know, like I'd talk a big game, but if they said, we're on it, I'm like, good. All right, let's get back to the wall building stuff. But Nehemiah's like, no, 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 no. Get everybody together. Everybody and the priests. We're making vows. We're signing things. We're putting this in blood. And then after the ink is still not dry on the contract, he takes his coat off and he says, see what I'm shaking out right now? That's what God's going to do to you if you back off this. Can you imagine? I'd be like, golly, man. Can you, can you like, we're trying. Ease up. He's like, no, 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 no. Because you see, this is what it means to be the people of God. And if you don't act like the family, you get kicked out of the family. 
It's incredible! Right? The, the repentance, it leads to change, and it's self-sacrificial. Now this is a little bit harder to see, but Nehemiah gives us his own example of what self-sacrifice looks like. Right? The dude, I don't know if you caught it, he's the mayor. Which in the ancient world means he has all sorts of obligations. He has to have a big table, he has to feed a bunch of people, he has to spend all the time at the wall, you know, with his clipboard and his hard hat, figuring out all that stuff out. But, but, you know, typically the reason why you sign up to be the mayor is so you can get the people's taxes, right? So you can acquire land, right? I mean, the workman is worthy of his wages, right? Nehemiah, it's time for him to get compensated for all this executive leadership he's demonstrating. But Nehemiah makes clear to us, I did not get paid the entire time I was the governor. I didn't take a check. And by the way, this wall business, we acquired no land. And if Nehemiah was part of a mayor's council, you know, in the broader area, and he got together with the other mayors, he's like, what do you mean you didn't get any land? Why do you even bother being a mayor if you can't get the land? Right? Nehemiah's way of life in the halls of power It's totally self-sacrificial for the sake of the hurting. And he tells us, why did he not get paid? First thing he tells us is because he feared God. And the last thing he tells us is because he saw that the burdens were heavy on the people. See, at the end of the day, what it means to fear God is to pay attention to when his people are hurting and to act accordingly. That's what it means To be in a relationship with the God who calls forth a just and righteous family. What does that look like for us? Man, it's immensely difficult. I have no idea. I should end right now. Maybe a few suggestions are in order. Maybe we could choose where we live differently. Maybe we could choose how we live differently. Maybe if we've chosen to live in a neighborhood that's struggling, we make sure to pay attention that the long-term residents of that neighborhood have a place, a firmer place, because we're there. Maybe it means we don't try to find the home or the apartment that represents the best neighborhood. Maybe we choose how to go to school differently or how to volunteer differently. Maybe that means sending your kids to a school you might not otherwise send them to. Maybe that means if you're here and you know your kids are struggling because they're in a school that's not as good as it should be, Getting more involved. Getting more involved with your kids, fellow, your classmates' parents. Maybe it means like coming alongside our youth group or one of the organizations our city like Streets or Memphis Athletic Ministries that's addressing precisely some of these issues. Maybe it means advocating for people to have access in your workplace. Maybe it means advocating for people with criminal records to get hired in your place of business. Maybe it means spending money at the black-owned food truck thing next week. Uh, maybe it means that when you find out that our brother Terrence and the incredible youth leadership team here at Downtown Church are going to try to create an opportunity for some of our young people to do summer jobs this summer, because summer jobs have been proven to be one of the most transformative things that can happen in the life of a teenager. Maybe you decide that your business or a business you influence is going to hire one of those 6 to 18s. Or maybe you decide that even though you're a teacher and you just want to hibernate all summer, you'll show up and encourage some of those young folks who are going to be working in their first job. Maybe it looks like finding ways to support those who have disabilities. You can talk to Daniel Harris about that. He's trying some really exciting new things to make sure that children with disabilities are included in our society. Maybe you can work with him. 
Maybe it looks like refusing to sell drugs or participate in that game, even when it seems like the only viable option, and going to college or going to trade school, and then not running away from your old neighborhood, but coming back and starting a business here and investing in your community. I have no idea what all it might look like, and I really mean that. But I know one thing. Whatever it is, just like for Nehemiah, it's going to require life change and self-sacrifice. So if we can't find places where our lives are changing, if we can't find ways where the cries of the hurting lead to our desires being pressed in upon, we haven't learned to repent yet. We haven't learned to listen yet. But fourthly and finally and most importantly by far... In God's just and righteous family, we must look to the just and righteous king. We're given one of the most powerful pictures of economic justice in the Bible right here in these verses. They're screwing it up. Nehemiah calls them out, calls himself out, and they fix it. I mean, this is as good as it gets, right? And in chapter 10, they're recommitting themselves. We will celebrate debt release. We will not sell on the Sabbath. We will embrace forever a just and righteous family. And by chapter 12, they're blowing it. See, the ugly truth is, Nehemiah not only calls us to embrace justice and righteousness, he demonstrates to us that we do not have what it takes to be the people that God wants us to be. That we ultimately come up short. That we cannot ultimately attain justice and righteousness because we are the unjust and we are the unrighteous and we need someone we need someone to intervene and that person in the Bible is Jesus that person is Jesus who is the just and righteous king who Hebrews tells us love justice and righteousness it's Jesus who comes on the scene and when all of his contemporaries were suffering under drowning debt he said lend freely one to another and declare a jubilee it's this Jesus, who when people were being sold into slavery, he said, I'm here to proclaim liberty for the captives. It's this Jesus, when people were segregating themselves from tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, he welcomed them to his table. He said, this is my family. And when we, like Nehemiah and his contemporaries, too often hand over our neighbor's children to degradation and slavery, Jesus is the one who said, let the little children come unto me. And that's why when he shows up, Matthew says, this is what Isaiah was talking about. A bruised reed, a blade of grass that's bent, he will not break. A candle in the wind, he will not snuff out. He has come to bring justice unto victory. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. Do you know that there is a king who is establishing justice in a way far beyond your wildest dreams? And you can meet him today. Do you know that? Have you met him? Do you know that the ark of the universe is indeed long and it does indeed burn to bend towards justice, but only because the universe is in King Jesus' hands and he's bending it in that direction. Do you know that? If you're here today and you are suffering and you feel like those Nehemiah 5, 2 through 5 people, and you can look and say, this is what a racist society is doing to me. This is what a classist society is doing to me. This is what a broken family is doing to me. If you're in that situation, let me tell you, Jesus is the just king who brings justice to victory, and he will not snuff you out. Do you know that? 
I'm going to keep going. And as I do, I'm going to ask our community group leaders and our elders to form some lines back here along the sides. Because I want to talk to you this morning. And I want to tell you, if you're in that category, if you know you're suffering from injustice, I want you to know that in just a minute, you can go and pray with people who want to tell you about how Jesus wants to intervene in that unjust situation through these people in these pews. And go there for prayer. Maybe you, like me, are reading the Word and you're recognizing you're on the wrong side of the injustice. Maybe you're realizing you're complicit. Maybe you're realizing you're apathetic. Maybe you're realizing that you're on the wrong side of this issue. Let me tell you something. There is a God who loves you so much that while you were an unjust sinner, He died for you to forgive you for your participation in this garbage that we're living in. Come find people to pray with you and encourage you. Come find out what it means to be discipled towards the kingdom of God, to repent and turn. And some of you in here are justice warriors and you're so tired. You're so tired. You're trying to do all the right things. You're trying to do it and you're weary and you know you can't do it and you know you can't make it right in your classroom. And you know you can't make it right in your youth group. You know you can't make it right in your neighborhood. And you can't make it right in the courtroom. And you can't make it right in your business. And you're exhausted. Let me tell you something. There is a God who is not just offered to do justice, but He has become for us justice and righteousness and wisdom and sanctification. And His burden is easy. And His yoke is light. And you can find people to pray with you here and comfort you and say, This, Jesus, is good news for you exhausted folks who know deep down inside... The problems aren't just out there. They're in here. And it's exhausting. And you can't carry it on your own. And you're broken. Come find rest for your weary souls. And if any of you in any of those groups, you feel like a victim, you feel like a perpetrator, you feel like you're exhausted, if any of you, for the love of God, if you are not in a relationship with this just king, don't leave here today without meeting him. There is a king who loves you so much to have chased you as far as you could possibly run to forgive you for your sins, to restore you dignity and meaning and purpose and to give you eternal life in his name. If you don't know that Jesus, whether you feel like victim or perpetrator or exhausted justice worker, you need to meet him today. You need to meet him today. He loves you. He died for you. He rose for you. Brothers and sisters, it's hard at this point in the sermon being a young white Presbyterian. If I was a black Baptist minister, this is the point where I'd stop start singing. If I was Billy Graham, I'd cue just as I am from the band in the back. I'm neither of those things, but what I want to tell you is that if you don't know this Jesus, He loves you and He wants to meet you today. And there's a dozen people on either side of this room who want to tell you how to get in a relationship with Him. Because the good news, folks, is our King won't stop. He won't stop until He brings His bruised reed protecting, His smoldering wick shielding, justice unto victory in your life, in our lives, and in this world. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, forever and ever. Amen. Join me in prayer. Christ, we are the unjust. We are the unrighteous. And we are the victims. And we are the exhausted. And we need You. We need You to forgive us for our oppression and our perpetration. We need you to rescue us 
from our suffering. And Jesus, we need you to, to heal us and walk with us and carry us in our feeble efforts to serve and honor and love you. Friends, if you are here this morning and you have never asked Jesus to rule and reign in your life, you can pray with me right now. You can say, Jesus, I need your justice. The kind of justice that is good news to sinners. The kind of justice that is good news to the broken. I need you, Jesus. Call on his name. You can pray with me right now and you can say, Lord, I have been a part of the problem. And I need forgiveness. I need forgiveness and I need rescue. And you can pray with me right now and you can say, Jesus, I want to give my life to you. I want you to bring justice and victory in my life. I want you to bring healing and restoration in my life. And I will follow you to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, that's all it takes. That's all it takes is a prayer where you call on our just king to rule and reign and restore in your life. Jesus, we pray that your gospel would go out into our city and there would be good news. Good news for all of us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.